0: have a bible with you today we're looking at matthew chapter 5 starting at verse 17 we're continuing in our series on the sermon on the mount if you don't have a bible that's fine you can find the text inside your order of worship there's a note sheet in there or you could use your phone or anything else you'd like (laughs) say i say to you hear the word of god do not think that i've come to abolish or the prophets i've not come to abolish them Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not adopt the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the commandments, teaches others to do the same, will be called in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray uh, that you would teach us about your law. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my speaking. Amen and amen. Is my sound going in and out? Okay, because I feel like I'm going crazy up here. I almost put my hearing aid in. Um, All right. So, we're in the middle of this series on the Sermon on the Mount. We started about six weeks ago, and today it takes an interesting turn, right, because the Sermon on the Mount is all about Jesus teaching, and he's getting ready to launch into a, a, a big uh, section of teaching, but before he does that, he has to make sure everyone's on the same page, or at least everyone knows where he is coming from. And so, the question I'm going to ask you this morning to begin with is this. If you read the Bible, how do you read the Bible? You ever thought about that? In, in other words, are you, when you read the Bible, are you self-conscious of what you're bringing to it? Are you self-conscious of, your, of, of the, the, the method you're using? Something like that. So for example, I listed out about five different ways people read the Bible, right? So the first way people often read the Bible is just they read it to be, a, a, as a formative document. And what I mean by that, is if you're a Christian and you read the Bible every morning for what your, your devotional time or your quiet time, and you read it and you just you're hoping that God speaks to you, you're hoping to learn something that you know that's you you're reading it formatively. Now maybe you might read the Bible just informationally. Now who would read the Bible informationally? Well, you you know all of Western civilization at some level was based on the on the Bible, and so you might think, well, it's just to be a well-educated, liberal-minded person, I'm going to read. The Bible. You just read it informationally. That's valid. The other way we, we often read it is um, historically. Right? You want to find out, like remember I told you a couple, the, like maybe several months ago when I did my DNA test, my mom sent me, and I got it back, and, it, and I was 2% Ashkenazi Jew, and suddenly I was like, my people, right? I was like, all right, and like, maybe that happened to you, and you, you think, I need to find out about the Jews, and so you read back into the Old Testament, you're reading historically, you want to find out about those kinds of things. So the other way we often read it, frankly, is as a self-help book. You ever look to the Bible for uh, information on how to run your finances, right? You're using it as a self-help, that's not bad, it just is what it is, right? Some people use the Bible to find diet plans, whatever it is, you read it as a self-help book. And then finally, maybe some of us read the Bible just morally. We want to be good people and we think, well, I'm going to read the Bible because the Bible tells me how to be a good person. All of those ways of reading the Bible are valid. at one point or another, and at some time or another in our lives. Here's the thing, though. None of those ways is the way that Jesus reads the Bible. He reads the Bible completely differently than any of those. Now, why is that important? It's important because as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually sort of stops for a minute and says to people, let me tell you how I read the Bible so you're not surprised when we get to the rest of the teaching. Remember, up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, we've been talking about the fact that that really what Jesus is teaching is what it means to live your best life, at least from his perspective. Notice all the Beatitudes, you know, say, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. And that word blessed there is the same type of word, if if you read Psalm 1, where it says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That, that's living your best life. You want to live your best life? Don't hang out with the wicked, right? That, that's not um, a moral thing. It's just, it's a, it's a fact. And so Jesus tells us all of these beatitudes, and on one hand, it's, it's great. On the other hand, it seems a little bit different than you would expect, right? You wouldn't expect someone to say, hey, how, how do I live my best life? You wouldn't expect the answer to be, be poor in spirit, grieve over your sins, mourn over your sins. Give up your rights. Be meek. And remember he says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. Blessed are the the pure in heart, but they will see God. And we saw last week that where he goes from that, we would expect Jesus to go from the Beatitudes, we'd expect him to go right into teaching about divorce, or teaching about anger, or teaching about lust, or teaching about something. Instead, he teaches about mission. And he tells his, his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Don't forget that. Now, today is interesting because before he gets into the teaching, he, he reminds people how he reads the Bible, and I think, ultimately, how he would like his disciples to read the Bible. So, we're going to look at two things this morning. Basically, we're going to look at how Jesus reads the Bible, but also we're going to look at how he raises the standards of the Bible. And when I, when I say the Bible this morning, I mean, of course, the Old Testament. When Jesus was teaching, there was no New Testament. So when Jesus, whenever you hear me say the Bible, I'm talking about the Old Testament. So we're going to see how Jesus reads it, but also we're going to see that he, how he raises the standards that are set forth in it. So let's look first. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now why does he start there? I think he starts there because if you remember the crowd that he's speaking to, is basically his disciples and then there's a lot of people around and among the people who are just hanging around are people who are basically uh, religious leaders on one hand on the other hand you have a lot of people who are probably irreligious a lot of people remember it was Galilee of the Gentiles and so you have people on one hand let's talk about the religious leaders for a minute they were listening to Jesus and they were listening to what he had to say about the Bible and they were were scrutinizing him to make sure he didn't do anything wrong they want to make sure he didn't screw it up. And so they were, they were worried that he was going to somehow lower the standards of the Bible. On the other hand, you have people who maybe in the crowd were hoping he was lowering the standards of the Bible, right? So the religious people were saying, you know, you got to make sure you obey everything. And the other people saying, I hope he lowers the standards. I don't have what it takes. And then you had the disciples then sort of sitting there going, I don't really know what's going on. And so, Jesus anticipates the religious person, and he anticipates the irreligious person, and he says to both of them, don't think that I came to abolish the law. Don't, th- just don't even think that for a minute. And so, instead of abolishing the law, he says to himself, um, he says, I didn't come to, to abolish the law, but I came, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, if you're the religious person, you hear Jesus say, on one hand, he says, I did not come to abolish the law. You're, if you're the religious person, you say, phew, law is important. And by law, by the way, that's, that's Torah. It would be Torah in the Old Testament. He said, the law is important. On the other hand, the, maybe the irreligious person is like, dang. <laughs> right? I was hoping he was going to lower his standards a little bit. But then what he says, I've not come to abolish them, to b- fulfill them, both the religious person and the religious, irreligious person would say, wait, well, wait, what? What do you mean by that? You see, because what we would expect Jesus to say is, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to obey the law, right? I'm a good teacher. Or I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to teach the law, just as it is, and just as the Pharisees, just as the scribes, just as they do it. Instead, he says something that is just crazy. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And in that statement, he tells us how he reads the Bible. How does Jesus read the Bible? When Jesus reads the Bible, he sees the whole thing as being about him. The whole thing. In other words, he says, I didn't come to, to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And when he says, I came to fulfill them, what does he mean by that? Basically, he's saying, everything in the Bible, everything in the Old Testament points to me. Every promise, every prediction is fulfilled in me. Every type and every shadow, everything, it's about me. Ultimately, it points to me. And you can just imagine people in the crowd start peppering him with things, right? How about Genesis? Is that about you? Come on. And Jesus would say, let me me think about it. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and they totally screwed everything up and everything was lost. All hope was lost. The garden was lost. Paradise was lost. God came to them and said, what? He said to the serpent. He says, The seed of the woman will crush your head. You will strike his heel. In other words, God came and said, I'm going to fix it through one of your seed, Adam and Eve. That's, I'm the guy. Remember Adam and Eve, when when they had their first child, they named him Cain. And you know what, remember what Cain means? Cain means, Here he is. God said, I'm going to fix it through one of your seed. They had a seed, and they named him, Here he is. Now, that didn't work out very well. Jesus says, I'm the guy. I'm the guy you have been waiting for. Noah's Ark, you ever read that story? Yeah. I'm the Ark. I'm the one who carries you through the flood of God's judgment. Remember Exodus when Moses was out in the wilderness and all the Israelites did nothing but complain, 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 complain. And they were about to die of thirst. And God, Moses, told Moses to strike a rock. And he struck the rock and water came flowing out. And they drank from it and were saved. Guess what? I'm the rock. I'm that guy. That rock actually points forward to me. And remember when? Um, remember in Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah saw this vision of God in the temple, and he said, "Woe is me! I am undone!" And all the angels and the cherubim were crying out, "Holy, holy, holy!" Guess who that was? It was me. I mean it. I didn't even notice that till this week in John chapter 12, what John says about Jesus. In 12, 37, he says, when Jesus, he's talking about how people are not believing in him. It says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them, though they had done many signs before them, and they did not believe in him. And so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The Lord, Lord, who has believed what they heard from us, and who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. And Isaiah said again, For he has blinded the, their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. In verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, Jesus's glory, and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even many authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. That's amazing. To me that jesus is it, all the things in the old testament jesus says all those things point to me all those things culminate to me passover lamb remember what the john the baptist said about jesus when he saw jesus he cried out behold the lamb of god who does what who takes away the sin of the world scapegoat, put your sins on me and send me outside the camp and kill me. All of those things are fulfilled in Jesus. And an easy way to get it, to look at it, too, is to just look at Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament offices. Remember, in the Old Testament, there were three offices. There were the office of prophet, priest, and king. Right? Remember, prophet brings the word of God to people, but he also um, speaks to them uh, words of comfort, and the prophet basically calls people to come home. You're in exile now, you've been dispersed, come home. Jesus says to us, you are an exile, come home. He also is the priest. What does the priest do in the Old Testament? The priest mediates between God and man. The priest is one who goes into the temple and, and performs a sacrifice so that people's sins can be forgiven. Listen to what the book of Hebrews says about Jesus. The author of Hebrews says this, it says, and every priest Through his death on the cross, one sacrifice for all time, Jesus has done as our priest. But not only is he the prophet that, that the Old Testament point to, not only is he the priests that the Old Testament point to, but he's also the king. He is the one who has come to provide and protect and conquer all of our enemies. And the greatest enemy you and I have is sin. Admit it. Jesus conquers it by taking it onto himself. Jesus conquers our Sins and our enemies by bearing them on our behalf. You know, basically, um, if you remember the book of Judges, in the book of Judges, the book of Judges is probably my favorite book to teach because it's sort of just full of mayhem. Remember the book of in the book of Judges, over and over again, you hear this line: Israel had no king, and so they did what was right in their own eyes. Right, the the first part of the. Judges, there's, there's no leadership at all, and they fail to conquer the land. The middle is all those cycles of good and bad, and it starts with like a perfect judge, and it goes all the way down to Samson, who's the most disgusting, deplorable human being you ever met in your life, but he's all you got. And then by the end of the book of Judges, you have anarchy. And the refrain that you hear over and over again is, Israel had no king, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Jesus is that king. Jesus is the king that breaks the cycles of good and bad in our life. Jesus is the king that cuts through our own anarchy and gives us life and help and order. But not, not only that, all the prophets, priests, the kings, and even other religions point to the truth. right? Any, everyone would agree with that. The difference between the, the, the prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament and even other religions, is while they all point to the truth, Jesus comes along and says what? He says, I am the truth. And that's something, so when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it always makes me laugh when people say, oh, I just followed the Sermon on the Mount. I just believe the golden rules. Because the thing is, if you, if you consider what Jesus is saying here, you really only have three options. right? Either he's lying about it, which from your perspective he might be. Right, or more likely, he's just crazy. What kind of person says these things about themselves? That the whole Bible it culminates in him. You know, I used to be a drug rep for uh, Eli Lilly, and I used to work with psychiatrists, and, and we'd talk about bipolar all the time. And one of the easiest ways to tell if someone wasn't doing well is I'd say, Doctor, what's wrong with that guy? And he'd say, What? He thinks he's Jesus. Well, that but that was just shorthand for saying that guy is crazier than a rat in a coffee can. Jesus here thinks he is Jesus. He is either lying or he thinks he is Jesus or he's who he says he is. And that's really what you, the, the question, the big question you have to leave here with today is what, it, it, Jesus says these things about himself, is he a liar, is he crazy or is he actually who he says he is? Is he the one? Who fulfills all the law? Now, if, as you're wondering, that Jesus takes things another, to, to, to another level, if you will, by, by basically telling us sort of his esteem for the Torah and he raises the standard. You see, the, the religious, on one hand, were worried that Jesus was going to lower the standards. You know, he's going to come along here and he's preaching grace and he's healing people on the Sabbath, all these things. Not only does Jesus not lower the standards, he raises the standards of the law. Let's look at that quickly. Notice verse 18, he says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So it's always interesting when Jesus says truly, that's the word amen, and and usually rabbis would say something, and then at the end of what they say, they would say amen, and they would look for your approval, right? Amen? Amen. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says amen before he says something because he sort of doesn't care whether you think it's true or not. It is true, at least according to him. And so he says, truly, I say to you, he says, not not until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And that's a phrase we would say something like, forgive my language, but like hell will freeze over before the law goes away. And, And not only that, notice what he says, In verse 19, he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now listen to verse 20. Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the experts, unless your righteousness exceeds that of those who have memorized the Bible and those who have spent their whole lives understanding what the Torah means, unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, you don't stand a chance. Now, back to the religious people and the irreligious people. The religious people got to be thinking, who does he think he is? Could anyone be better than us? And as soon as you think that, the answer is yes, of course. The the, the options that Jesus gives us, that that we're left with, when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, are really three. On one hand, you can just try really hard and say, well, okay, I'm going to buckle down. I'm going to try and have a righteousness, try and be good enough so that my righteousness exceeds that of the experts. On the other hand, you could just despair and say, you know what? I don't have what it takes. I never will have what it takes. And so I'm not even going to try. And you just walk away. But there's a third way. The third way is this. In, instead of trying to, to, to kill yourself working or, or instead of despair, the third way is to actually get your righteousness from another person. To have someone else's righteousness imputed or credited to your, on, on your behalf. In other words, if you could find someone whose righteousness exceeded the scribe, that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and they would be willing to give you their righteousness and take all of your sins, that would be awesome, right? Well, that, at, the, at the end of the day, that is the core of what the, the Christian faith says, that he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God in him. I'll close with a story. This happens to me probably about once a week. So I swim three or four times a week. And after, I do the same thing every time. You know, I swim for, a half, for about a mile, and then I get out, and the sauna's right there, and I go sit in the sauna for 15 minutes, and I get out of the sauna, and I go take a cold shower. Every week. And at least once, at some point during every week, because I, I, many of you, all of you know I was in the Army, I have a ranger tattoo on my chest, and I'll be sitting in the sauna, and someone will say, Oh, did you serve? And I'll say, yeah. Now, the thing is, I like the sauna because it's quiet and no one bothers me. They always do. And they'll say, the next question is always, so what do you do now? And if I really want them to stop bothering me, I'll say, I'm a preacher. And usually that works. Usually people go, oh, cool. Put their head down. Every now and then, Like, this, uh, two weeks ago, I was in there, and we had that conversation, and the man said, what do you do now? And I said, oh, I'm a preacher. And he said, cool, where? And I said, well, I'm at the Presbyterian Church, about a half mile north of here. And he said, oh, wow, you could probably see my church from your church. And I said, oh, you mean the big Mormon church, like, across the street? He's like, yeah, that's my church. And I said, yeah, I can see your steeple from my my church. And he said... (laughs) He said, I mean, we're basically naked, right? And, he, and he's like, he says, I know everyone has all their different philosophies and everyone believes different things. I just know that, that when I go to heaven and God says, why, that, that, have you been a good and honest man? I will say yes, and he'll just let me in. And I said, whew, good luck with that. <laughs> he said, what do you mean? And I said, I don't know if it works that way. He said, what would you say? If God said, were you good and honest? I'd say, honestly? Not so much. I'm not really. Not as good as I want to be. My righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm I'm really not. I mean, especially if you look at my past, I, I want to be a good and honest man. But at the end of the day, you know, I can't really, like, rest on that. And he was like, well, then what would you say? Oh, I would say, that's easy. If he, if he said, Tommy, were you a good and honest man? I would say, no, but he was. Who are you pointing at? Jesus. Jesus was good and righteous. Jesus was good and honest. And when he went to the cross, all of my badness, all of my failures, all of my, my, my uh, covenant unfaithfulness was poured out upon him, and all of his goodness is given to me by faith that's how I'm, that's what I'm going to say. And his response to that was crickets. And he said, huh, I didn't think about that. And I said, that's funny. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, every time I preach, the way I finish is I say, you think about that. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I just thank you for uh, bringing us together. I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus as the fulfillment of it. He's the, the fulfiller of the law. He's the fulfiller of the prophets. He's the fulfiller of the writings. He is the one uh, who became sin so that we might become righteous. In Christ's name we pray these things, amen and amen.